Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever and whenever you are watching or listening. This is the Holistic Monitor, and I'm your host, Nick Sconia. The Holistic Monitor podcast is a weekly show featuring guest interviews with discussions about self-discovery, philosophy, spirituality, and our relationship with the world around us. Your support this last year has meant the world to me, and you can now go to holisticmonitor.com to support the topics you want to hear with our new show merchandise, featuring hats, t-shirts, hoodies, and more. You can also support us by simply sharing your favorite episode with your followers. And with that, let's get the show started. The Holistic Monitor, this is Nick Sconia, your host, and tonight we have a special guest, Steve D'Angelo. He is the uh, author of The Cannabis Manifesto and is noted as one of the uh, top 10 people to know in the cannabis industry. Uh, without further ado, he has a very long bio. I'd love to hear a little bit of it from him directly. I'm going to bring him in. Hey, Steve, how are we doing? Hey, Nick. Great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. So you've got a really long bio, and uh, you've done a lot in your life. It uh, seems that uh, things really turned uh, turned up as far as the uh, the volume of things going on with uh, legalization in the cannabis industry. And uh, does that sound accurate? No, it doesn't. No, okay. Directory of my career. Uh, I started in cannabis activism uh, when I was thirteen years old. And oh. uh, worked very, very diligently to finally get cannabis legalized for adult purposes in my home state of California, my adopted home state of California in 2018. Unfortunately, since the passage of that law in 2018, California's cannabis industry and pretty much the cannabis industry nationwide has been almost completely destroyed. Hmm. Uh, and you mean by the recreational slash medical uh, laws that have passed have uh, kind of uh, taken it out of the people's hands and put it into corporations? I mean that and that the legal corporations miserably failed at serving the market. Today, legal cannabis only occupies about 20% of the total cannabis market in the United States. Legacy mm. unregulated cannabis providers serve the vast majority of the, of the market. So legalization has been an abysmal failure. It's been an abysmal failure because the regulators chose to overtax and overregulate a substance which is safer than 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 aspirin. Right. Yeah, and uh, it's a plant, so it's something that can grow. It's not like there's uh, this need for all this uh, strict uh, laws around it and uh, dispensaries, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, again, taking out of the people's hands in what they were doing. So really it's more advocacy for changing the laws in general around uh, the plant. Does that sound right? Well, my first allegiance has always been to the plant itself. And my belief is that if more people consume more cannabis more frequently, that's probably the best pathway to us solving the problems that we face as, as a species and, and on this planet. So, my main goal has always been to increase the acceptance and knowledge of cannabis, to spread its use as far as wide as possible, and to remove as many legal barriers as possible to it being distributed to the people who, who need it. 
So, you know, rather than being an advocate for cultivators or an advocate for consumers or an advocate for legalization, I really see myself and, and try the best I can to listen to the plant and the messages she sends me and represent the plant as faithfully as I can. Yeah, that's that's a good place to be, actually. And it's just saying, let's say in the early 2000s, there was a lot of movement in California uh, towards medical uh, acceptance and the medical law to make it more easy for people to access. Um, but there was a lot of restriction, restrictive laws around, well, you know, the canopy size, the amount of plants um, and all of that. Uh, it just seemed like it was not being done, not being rolled out in a way that was very accessible for something that is medical, that is a helpful thing. Uh, and do you think the stigma with it being in the schedule that it is in, um, that was what was creating all the, the turmoil with a simple rollout of new laws, all of that could have been fixed and, and, you know, without all this rigmarole and issues around it? Well, I actually think that the period of time between 1996 and 2018 in California was the golden age of legal cannabis in California. Mm. Um, in, in 1996, the voters of California passed Prop 215, which allowed collectives of medical cannabis patients to come together to cultivate cannabis and to distribute that cannabis amongst themselves on a nonprofit basis. Yeah. And that system, as it developed, worked very well for everybody involved in the system. Uh, growers were making enough money to buy the land that they were growing their cannabis on and send their kids to school. Uh, patients were able to come into dispensaries and get the best cannabis in the world at really affordable prices. People who worked in dispensaries had the best jobs that they've ever had and unfortunately probably ever will have. Hmm. Um, and on, 20, on, on, on January 1st, 2018, uh, all of that changed. You know, Now, under our system, nobody made intergenerational wealth. Nobody got fabulously rich but everybody was well taken care of. Well, after 2018, you saw two really unfortunate developments in California. One was that the Canadian public stock exchanges opened up to American companies. Mm. The result was a flood of hundreds of millions of dollars into the California market from those Canadian public exchanges, primarily the Canadian Securities Exchange. The second thing that happened was that that money was what the second thing that happened was was that the new regulations in California made it impossible for the people who had built the cannabis industry in California to remain in it. The overall result was that all of that new money flowed into the hands of a bunch of lawyers, a bunch of mediocre corporate operators, a bunch of people who had never consumed cannabis, didn't understand the community, and they were given the responsibility of building California's cannabis industry. And they've completely blown the opportunity. California mm -hmm. today is a poster child worldwide for how not to legalize cannabis. Mm, okay. And, and opposed to Colorado, for an example, is that the same kind of issue happening in Colorado or did they do it in a better way? Colorado was moderately better because the regulations were less onerous. The tax uh, scheme was much less onerous. So in most of California, Taxes are run around 50% total when you combine the local taxes, the county taxes, the state taxes, the cultivation taxes, the excise taxes, the sales taxes. Mm. 
So that raises the price of cannabis in California dispensaries to almost twice the price that it would be on 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 the street. And and wow. then there was overregulation where, you know, just in order to get your cannabis tested to get it into the market uh, was a ridiculous amount of money. You know, most crops like corn are tested at the ton load level or one every several acres uh, for cannabis. They made us test every five pound batch of cannabis and wow. each test cost $1,100. And so that put, you know, 200 bucks plus on the price of every pound of cannabis. And there were just ridiculous regulations that were completely unnecessary piled one on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. The result is that the only people who buy cannabis in legal dispensaries in California are people who are from out of state, don't know how to access the unregulated market, or people who are so rich, they don't care how much money they spend, or people who are so clueless, they don't know how to buy weed from their next door neighbors <laughs> on either side of them. Right, right. Yeah, uh, again, I, and, and that goes to a lot of the different industries in California. There are a lot of regulations that kind of bog down uh, the easy exchange of things. And, um, you know, it's more regulation, unfortunately. Uh, now, you see that there's other states, there's a lot of states rolling out different levels of uh, access, whether that be medical or recreation. Are there any states that you've seen that are doing it in, in a very positive, good way that would be kind of a poster child of the opposite of California? Well, you know, perhaps counterintuitively for, you know, someone who's been a counterculture advocate for their entire lives. I find the approach of the state of Oklahoma to be the one that's most equitable. Uh -huh. um, you know, give out as many cannabis licenses as you can, um, uh, put on as few regulations as you can, don't enforce those regulations at all, and let people figure it out. Um, <laughs> so my view on cannabis is that cannabis is probably the safest product that exists in society today. Uh, certainly one of the most beneficial. There's no reason for it to be regulated period. End of right. story. Uh, it is an agricultural crop. There should be no more regulation on cannabis than there is on tomatoes. Yeah. And there is some uh, regulation on agriculture, but it's within, you know, within reason to keep the prices Unless labels competitive. Labels cannabis organic, make sure it's organic. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> people are trying to, to, to grow in some way that's destructive, stop them from doing it. But the plant itself is is probably the most beneficial substance known to mankind today. And it's profoundly in the interest of all of us to extend the use of this plant as, as widely as possible. This is a plant which makes people more thoughtful, which makes people kinder, which makes people more generous, which brings them in closer touch with nature, which teaches them how to resolve conflicts more peacefully, which opens them to spiritual discovery and exploration. Um, which has the ability to inspire an artist to find just the right color of paint uh, to turn a walk through the forest into a spiritual experience to turn an argument into a conversation. We need more cannabis. We need less regulation, not more. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Now, uh, I have your links in the description and uh, I have your, your website. Uh, you have the book, The Cannabis Manifesto. Is that something that they can... At the the listeners can access through your site? Yeah, it's a little bit dated, um, but uh, you can find it uh, on Amazon. 
uh, and through my website. I also wrote a couple of pieces more recently, okay. um, one of which is uh, called Save the Industry, Scale It Down, and the other is called Topple the Pyramids. Um, in both cases, those uh, essays are calls for cannabis reform to happen, not just at the top level with things like safe banking, but also at the lower level, so that these ridiculous regulatory restrictions that keep the most talented and dedicated parts of the cannabis community underground uh, are changed and yeah. uh, open up the legal system to the people who really care about this plan. Right. And let and let everybody figure it out. Let it be sorted in a way that that makes sense to everybody, you know, in the individual uh, in their individual lives. Let the consumers figure it out. Yeah. Like, every other product in the United States of America. Instead, right. this artificial system has been created that only allows certain very privileged people to put their cannabis products into the legal channel. And everybody else has to remain illegal. And they're still getting arrested and they're still getting imprisoned and they're still having their kids taken away from them. So uh, it's, it's really, we've seen this mass colonization of the counterculture industry by a bunch of reprehensible straight people who never did anything to help us along the way of the struggle. Right. And only know the business side of things, but not this business. Yeah. And now, yeah. businesses like oil businesses and alcohol right. businesses and forestry businesses, businesses that destroy the planet rather than promote it. Right. And these cretins are now in our industry. Yeah. And it is that factor that um, ability for, access to transcendence. I think that's what the powers that be fear in the plant is that there is an ability for um, a connection beyond control that uh, is feared. Uh, at least that's my opinion on it. Um, and they also, now you have another project and uh, this is the uh, Life is a Ceremony, the Rasta Village. Yeah, let's step back to that control piece for one second, because it's really important. Yeah. Reason that religious, moral, educational and government authorities fear cannabis. The reason that they fear all of the sacred divine plants is because when we consume these plants, we have direct conversations with the divine and the authority of the messages that we get directly from the divine are way more powerful and way more effective and authoritative than anything that will ever come from any earthly body. Um, and so they fear these plants, they fear these substances because they know that they have the power. These substances have the power to ensure that we make sure that the innermost yearnings of our hearts are matched by our daily activities. And that is profoundly not the case in the world today. And that disturbs the power structure greatly. Yeah. And in a lot of different levels. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. And that's because of that individual being able to access without the in intermediary that's been in place for, for eons. Um, you could say that uh, cannabis is the old way to connect, you know, but it's accessible. It's available. The old way to connect to the, to the, you know, universe at large or whatever terms and language you want to use. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the oldest, um, the oldest recorded evidence of human cannabis consumption comes from the grave of a shaman that was found on a river flowing between what is now Afghanistan and Pakistan, the Kunar River Valley. There was a cave grave there. 
and the cave grave contained the grave of a shaman with a different bunch of shamanic spiritual tools amongst them a kilo of hashish resin hmm. how about that yeah do you know what the date on that 12,000 years ago 12,000 yeah so ice age time period yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, basically as soon as the ice started receding in the Himalayas the cannabis plants started coming out and mm -hmm. uh, and they were first some of the first plants that human beings uh, cultivated you know as uh, as hunter-gatherers we gathered around rivers because they were constant uh, reliable sources of protein yeah and, and in those river banks we cleared the river banks creating the ideal uh, environment for the growth of hemp and from that hemp, we make nets, we made strings, we made all sorts of things we needed to harvest fish, to harvest protein from those rivers. And so cannabis and human beings go back to the very beginning of, of human beings. But I would love to talk about Rastafari Indigenous Village. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, are you are you located there? Are you I'm, there now? I am not there right okay. now. Uh, right now I'm at my home in Oakland, California catching up on a few medical issues that I can't quite catch up on in, 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 in Jamaica. Uh, but yeah. I spent most of last year embedded in the Rastafari indigenous village, which mm. is this unique community, um, which now has the ability to, um, uh, welcome visitors. The village was founded in 2007, uh, with the idea of creating an area where visitors to Jamaica could experience and help preserve traditional Rastafari culture. And of course, the Rastafari culture is the culture that really inspired and gave birth to reggae. And it's this beautiful, beautiful way of life that's centered around peace and love and nature and drumming and singing and dignity of all human beings. Rastafari have this concept of the horizontal society, none above, none below, all sovereign in their own realm. And um, uh, cannabis has always been a sacrament to Rastafari. Uh, about a decade ago, the village was introduced to other sacred plant medicines, ayahuasca, psilocybin, other sacred plant medicines by some Amazonian practitioners who are looking for a site to do a ceremony in Jamaica. And there was just an instant mesh, an instant embrace of these plants by Rastafari indigenous village. And the village spent several years incorporating the lessons that they were learning from the plants into their spiritual practice, into their drawings, into their paintings, into their singing, into their chants, into their storytelling, into their artwork, into their reasonings. And, uh, and so it's this very, very unique syncretic culture between Rastafari and the more global plant medicine movement. And it's just expressed in these beautiful ways like you know, you usually go to an ayahuasca retreat in Peru or Ecuador or someplace, and, and it has huge value for people. I don't mean to diminish it in any way or, or the Shipibo people or any of their practices. But the songs are sung in a language that most people can't understand. When you go to Rastafari Indigenous Village, uh, the songs are sung in English. Mm -hmm. You can understand the lyrics of the words. They come out of a Nyabingi rhythm, which is the root of reggae. So it's very accessible and very meaningful in, in a way that perhaps the, the, the less obscure, the more obscure expressions of psychedelic culture uh, are not. And um, it's also a team of uh, exclusively Afro-Caribbean facilitators, occasionally with folks from the Amazon visiting. 
So when you think about experiences for people of color, uh, psychedelic experiences for people of color, uh, I think that there's a particular value uh, there because, you know, anybody who's been in the psychedelic realm knows that it's a very vulnerable place to be. Um, a lot of issues come up. A lot of painful issues can come up. Mm-hmm. And particularly for folks of color, uh, frequently issues of institutional, multi-generational, personal acts of racism are part of the processing that happens in the psychedelic experience. So having an Afrocentric environment, having a crew of Afro-Caribbean facilitators uh, to be able to assist and support uh, folks of color through those experiences, I think is something uh, that's very unique and valuable that we offer at the village. Yeah, that's amazing. So with somebody going there, they can go to uh, rastavillage.com and uh, buy a package uh, a certain amount of days. Is that how it works? Yeah, you know, what I really recommend is go to rastavillage.com. You'll find a WhatsApp number there. Call the WhatsApp number and give us a ring to work out your reservations. We do have a reservation system, which you could use, which is connected to a company called Retreat Guru. But generally, we, we prefer to have a little bit of conversation with folks who are coming to visit us because um, we're not a tourist operation. We're not a purpose-built resort. We don't welcome tourists. We don't welcome guests. We welcome fellow pilgrims uh, who are on the same spiritual path as we are. So um, if you can manage it, uh, give us a ring on WhatsApp and talk to us a bit before coming down. Yeah, and that gives everybody a kind of a, an idea to acclimate a little bit. Uh, and in a visit, uh, this is something that would happen over the course of a week or the course of two weeks, something like that, where they can kind of uh, go and investigate, do some self-discovery, have some transcendent experiences that they can, you know, increase their uh, sense of self and self-awareness. This is something that's very inclusive to this space, like a safe space. Yeah, our retreats are five days long. Um, They include a couple of uh, optional medicine ceremonies. And guests have the ability to embed in this village, which already lives by the lessons that the sacred medicine plants teach us. So it's very different from going to most of the Jamaican psychedelic resorts where, you know, a company from Canada rents a resort. They bring in a bunch of psychologists and celebrity yoga teachers and chefs from from offshore. They fly in the food from Miami. Uh, There's, you know, there's nice new age music. And it's a very safe and luxurious kind of experience for for folks. Mm-hmm. That's not us. Um, right. <laughs> uh, our place is not picture perfect. It's a real village. It has elders. It has children. Um, it's not always perfect, but it's always it's always real. Uh, real all of right. our facilitators live in the village. Um, they uh, are all practitioners of plant medicine, medicines, and and also a lifestyle that centers around plant medicine. So rather than a program where you go to a class and you go to a workshop and you get, you know, interviewed by a psychologist, instead you'll come into our regenerative garden where we grow cannabis and and food crops in relationships rather than rows, where each plant um, has something to contribute to the growth of the other plant. Mm. Or our medicinal herb garden where visitors can uh, walk through the garden with our healers who carry herbal lore and understanding literally centuries old that's been passed down from africa 
uh, they can pick all the various different plants that are best for whatever ails them and then walk over to our balm yard and learn how to make them into tinctures, into soaps, soaps, into shampoos, into lotions. Or visit our drum making studio and learn the African ancient techniques of drum making and then, and then, and then learn how to do uh, that drumming. Uh, we have this beautiful river, the Montego Valley River that flows alongside the property. And the pathway to the river is just it's like a cathedral with these 100 and 150 foot bamboo trees, breadfruit trees, avocado trees, mango trees, aki trees. You walk down to the river for your bath, your morning breathing meditation, maybe to smoke a spleef. And then you, you, you come back and, and by the time you've gotten back to the village 10 minutes later, your arms are full of <laughs> enough food to fill the whole village. And then we welcome folks to come into our Aital kitchen where we teach traditional Rastafari uh, food, cooking techniques and, and recipes um, to, to make that food. Um, you can uh, harvest a, a big cacao fruit from our trees, take the little cacao beans out, learn how to pound those cacao beans into what we uh, call chocolate tea and have this experience really with your food and with nature that takes you through the entire cycle. Uh, there's singing, there's chanting, there's drumming, there's storytelling, there's reasoning. We have some opportunities to go to the beach if, if people really want to do that. We do have a yoga room. We do have an exercise room. We do provide those activities uh, upon request. But really, what we offer is life as a ceremony and just embedding in this village that already lives by the lessons the plant teach us. And what we seek to provide for our, our pilgrims, our fellow seekers, is not to help them reintegrate more smoothly into the life that they came from that wounded them. We seek to empower and inspire our visitors to go back to the places that they came from so that they can be changed, so that they can be active. We believe that social change and social justice is a necessary part of the integration process and, uh, and that none of us uh, are going to be able to understand any of our individual trajectories until we start working on that larger project together. Yeah. Yeah. That's very inspiring. And so by embedding, you mean in that five days or there's an ability to embed longer if uh, desired? Oh, you can come for as many five day retreats as you like. Oh, okay. <laughs> in a <laughs> um, row. <laughs> we, we are flexible. Okay. Yeah. Um, we are just beginning. <clears throat> One of the great things about Rastafari indigenous villages is that it's quite intimate. A group as small as eight people, if they rent out each one of our single occupancy cabins, can have the entire village to themselves. Mm. That medicine, those medicine ceremonies can be only the people in their pre-formed group. We can also accommodate up to about 30 people in the village to, to do the same thing. So if there is a company, re, uh, a family reunion, an advocacy organization, um, folks like that who would like to have a more private kind of, of experience, we're really positioned for that. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we want to do, that we're looking for the resources to do, is have change makers retreats. Uh, you know, we believe that there are people all over the world who are on the front lines of fighting for social change, for environmental justice, for uh, economic justice, um, for against police violence. I think of the water protectors and the people who are struggling at Cop City 
and all the people uh, who are out there on the front lines defending our rights. And we'd like to find a way, we'd like to find sponsors to bring those folks uh, down to Rastafari Village and, and give them this rejuvenating, uh, inspiring experience. Yeah, it's kind of like a retreat, regroup, and then come back empowered and ready to uh, make change. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We don't really think that you can ex understand the psychedelic experience or, or truly benefit from it without also understanding that the world is in a place that demands that each each of us, each of our souls engage in a process of making change. Yeah. Yeah, that's and what I really like the way that that sounds, um, the idea of it being a village, an active village, a place where people live every day. Uh, they're living in a certain way. Uh, you know, to be in, to go with the uh, the pun there that they're living within the ceremony of life uh, in such a way that's making it sacred. Whereas you have a lot of people that are uh, in the Western world that are uh, not even thinking about it. You know, and to a really large degree, they're just buried in their phone or on the TV, buried in work. And they're not really looking at life as it's going by. You know, very fast in any kind of sacred way whatsoever. And it's, uh, you know, that can also breed a lot of problems, uh, psychological problems, physical problems that come out of just that kind of lifestyle uh, to be able to find somewhere to retreat, to regroup and maybe get a different side of life, uh, the life that they're living, but a different side of it, different facet. And then to be able to bring that up in that change, I think that's very powerful. You know, one of the concepts that we talk about about at the village a lot is the concept of reverence and how uh, how to such a great degree we've we've lost reverence in our society, reverence for one another, reverence for Mother Nature, reverence for our ancestors, reverence for our food supply, reverence for our trees, reverence for our children. Um, you know, to a very large degree, when, when human beings created religions that, that had gods up in the sky and rule books, uh, we also removed the sense of divinity from the ordinary. There was a time when human beings saw spirit and soul in every plant and every rock and in every piece of soil and every relationship and every ray of the sun and, and were reverent uh, to, those, to those, those divine manifestations of nature. And so... Uh, another one of the things that, that we hope to do is to, you know, rebuild within ourselves this idea of seeing divinity in the ordinary, of, of respecting and revering the things around us that are so very precious, which for the most part are, are not man-made things. They are not mansions. They are not fancy sports cars. They are not large yachts. They are not big bank accounts. They're the beautiful, beautiful creations that Mother Earth and the plants have been working on for all of these millennia. Yeah, yeah, that's, there's quite a magic just to being in nature. Um, I think a lot of people think of a vacation or um, even, you know, to get away to somewhere that's tropical. They're thinking of the beach and they're thinking of a resort where they're doing maybe two or three different activities at most. And that's their goal of an escape is to just escape their life, be in outside, but be outside at one location, pretty much not doing much, just sitting in the sun, you know, maybe swimming and hearing the surf, maybe snorkeling. Um, 
but there's so much more to uh, really rejuvenating our souls, our our beingness of being a human by going out into nature as many times as possible, obviously, not just on a vacation, but being in a vacation where people are actually engaged with nature uh, in such a way. And of course, uh, the diet change probably is a really nice uh, benefit too of the village, learning how to live a different way. Yeah, the diet change is pretty profound. All of our food is plant-based. Most of it comes right there from the village or foraged on the way uh, to the river. It's all natural. Um, it all starts out in whole form. And, and, and visitors have an opportunity to participate in, in, in that whole process. Yeah, you know, when we think about the role that the modern vacation plays for a lot of people, I, I think it's kind of understandable. Uh, the system has forced us into these really unbearable lives where we have to work an insane amount, where we have to worry all the time that even with all of this insane amount of work, that maybe we're still not going to make it that we have to worry constantly about the welfare of our parents and the welfare of our elders and whether or not we're even gonna be able to hang on to our homes. And we're on this constant, constant, constant high anxiety um, uh, treadmill. And so when vacation time comes, e e the, the natural impulse I know for me for many years was just to go do something that was more intense than the stuff that I was doing so that I could, that I could get away from all of that, right? Mm -hmm. So that I could break myself out of that cycle of anxiety. So I'd go off on vacations and I would do crazy risky things and I would take all kinds of drugs and I would stay out all night long and I would do all sorts of spectacular, amazing things to keep myself as busy, 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 busy as I could. And then I would go back to that frenetic life again. And I, I would feel like, okay, well, at least I grabbed a little pleasure. At least I got a little <laughs> bit out of it, right? And But mm -hmm. now I'm back into the thing again. Yeah. Well, how many times do you repeat that cycle before you get to be 50 or 60 years old, right? And right. you're still in this place where you're saying, most of my life sucks. Mm -hmm. I live for my vacations. Yeah. Screw that. Right. You don't need to do that. Take some time off. Sit with yourself. Smoke a joint underneath the trees. Eat a mushroom or two. Listen <laughs> to the innermost yearnings of your heart and your soul and change your life. Change the world. That's where the real satisfaction is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's in that every day. I think, uh, you know, in the idea of having a routine, uh, if you're unhappy, it's the routine that needs to be changed. Uh, you know, if it's an everyday thing where you're going the same way to work every day, and it's that is not pleasurable for some people that is that is security and that's very you know satisfying for them but uh changing that just that basic routine up can kind of switch things around and get your mind moving a little bit more but the idea of connecting to nature uh, as many touch points as possible uh and, and i mean as in nature as in it could be a park but you know better to be a forest that kind of idea um a lot of us do need to find a retreat and kind of get immersed within a different uh, experience that's going to be a, a healthy experience uh, so that we can kind of break free from whatever structure or mold we're creating around a life that's probably not very pleasurable. Uh, so the benefits of that uh, shattering of our predicament is a very good thing. Um, it's about bringing back a little light into your life and those around you and making everybody's life uh, really positive. 
It was incredibly healing for me, Nick. Um, before I was halfway into the village, the first time I visited, tears were streaming down my face hmm. because I finally saw a place that lived by the principles that I've been fighting for my whole life. And it felt like being in the very best place in the whole world. Um, it was everything that I had hoped that, that it would be, that, that we had struggled for. Um, and so, yeah, if, if there are any folks out there who are really, you know, feeling that you are in an existence that's got you on a treadmill that may not be serving your higher purposes, that may be leaving you with a sense of, 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 of not enoughness in your life, come visit us at the village, uh, come sit in our natural oasis, bathe yourself in the healing waters of the Montego River, eat our wonderful vital food. Uh, drum with us, chant with us, uh, get back into the eternal rhythms of nature that always have and always will sustain us. That's perfect. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you having uh, the time to come on the show tonight and uh, to chat with me and uh, share this wonderful experience and a little bit about your, uh, your history and your life. Well, thanks so much, Nick. Look forward to seeing you at the village and all your friends. There you go. Yeah. Excellent. And that's rastavillage.com. Rastavillage.com and at RIV Retreats on IG. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Be well. Highest Take vibrations. Care.